the entire chapter. And it's not a difficult chapter by any means, but there's some good truth in it for us. Um, and by the way, I, I just want to say I, I appreciated you all last week. I loved last week's worship service um, with you guys. It was a time of ministering to me. Appreciate you all. We're, we can see the, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel with the book of Acts. We're going to cover all of chapter 24. And then after this, there's going to be four more chapters left in the book. Now, it won't be four more weeks. We're going to take um, March 24th. is going to be an ordination service for our leaders. We're going to have Easter coming up, but um, we're getting close. And then from there, we're going to do a pretty big series on discipleship, which I'm really excited about. So just keep that in mind. So if you're going to follow along, here's how I've outlined the chapter. And like I said, there's some good truth in this. Tertullus, who is the Greek spokesman for the Jews, the contrast as they accuse Paul, they're flatterers, they're liars, and yet they're standing free. Where Paul, on the other hand, is the one in chains defending himself, and he's the truthful yet imprisoned one. And then Felix, who's presiding over the trial, his governor, was knowledgeable of the way and yet greedy. And we're going to focus our study not on Paul, which I've been focusing on Paul so much because I love his life. I love learning from him. We're going to focus on Felix this morning because there's such a sad but important truth in this chapter with this man. So if you're there in Acts chapter 24, let's begin reading in verse 1. And we'll read through verse 9. Luke writes, After five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout all the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Now, if you have a translation that didn't quite follow there. Hold on, we'll get to it. Verse 9, The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming all these things that were so. So if you remember, Paul has been brought down to Caesarea because uh, Lysias was informed by Paul's nephew that the Jews were going to kill him. So in the middle of the night, Paul was rushed out with over 480 soldiers and brought down safely to Caesarea to be kept guard from the Jews' plot to kill him. And he was there for five days, verse 1 says, before the high priest Ananias, who, if you remember from last chapter, presided over the Sanhedrin council that examined Paul. And it was to Ananias that Paul said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Remember, Ananias ordered that Paul be beaten, um, take blows, literally. He was a hypocritical and very wicked high priest. He had no regard for the law of God. He had regard for himself. But he shows up with some of the elders, and then a spokesman, literally an orator, or a lawyer, you could say, whose name was Tertullus, which is a Greek name. So we're not sure if Tertullus was a Roman lawyer, or if he was a Jew, a Hellenized Jew, a Greek-speaking Jew, who was familiar with the law of Rome. But in either case, this practice of hiring out someone familiar with Roman law was a common practice. The Jews did it very often. They weren't as versed or knowledgeable with Roman law, and so they would hire it out. That's who Tertullus is. He's, he's not necessarily for or against Paul. He's been paid money. And so he's going to say what they want him to say. Um, it's a nasty group of people here that's, that's accusing Paul, that's standing before him. Um, and it's, it's a sad picture that they're the religious people, and yet they're vile. They didn't care anything about truth. 
we're going to see that they accused Paul essentially of three things and not one of them was true. They're just trying to have Paul murdered because they weren't able to do it themselves. So let's look at these charges. First of all, Tertullus opens up in verse 2, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. So Tertullus opens up with a word, flattery. And I want to talk about this flattery because there are actually many scriptures that warn us against the use of flattery. Let me define what flattery is. Let me say this first. Let me back up. How do we know this is flattery? Well, the things that he says here of Felix, we enjoy much peace. And everything that follows was false. Felix was the most ruthless of the Roman governor's ruling. Um, he made political decisions, and if it meant killing a bunch of Jews, he'd kill a bunch of Jews. In fact, that would eventually get him out of the governorship. We're going to see at the very end of the chapter... Verse 27, you can look over there. Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. The reason he was succeeded is because he slaughtered a bunch of Jews and he was called back to Rome and dispossessed of his governorship. So he was a ruthless ruler. They didn't enjoy peace. And then it says, By your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. That also is a lie. Josephus and Tacitus, Josephus was a Jewish historian, Tacitus a Roman historian, both testify that the Jews constantly tried to rebel against Felix because his reforms were no good, and they didn't want him, and they didn't like him. So Tertullus is buttering him up. It's flattery. There's nothing good or true about what he's saying. Tertullus, or uh, Felix himself, it's a, we actually know quite a bit about him from history. He was a former slave. And his brother knew the emperor, Claudius, the Roman emperor. And it was through that relationship that he was freed from slavery and given this governorship. Tacitus, however, the Roman historian I just referenced, said this about him. He said that Felix exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. He didn't care about truth, justice, nothing like that. He was ruthless. And he also, Tacitus also calls those who would use flattery to get their end the worst of enemies. Isn't that interesting? He's a Roman. He wasn't a believer. But he saw the danger of those who used flattery. They, they were the worst of enemies. Let's look at what the Bible says about flattery. Literally, flattery means a fawner. One who fawns over somebody else. Whether true or not. You just, you flower them with great language. You fawn over them. You build them up. No basis in truth. You're a fawner. The Bible has very strong words and warnings against it. And uh, we won't turn to these, but in Proverbs chapter 2, chapter 6, and chapter 7, Solomon uses the word flatterer. It's translated smooth words to identify the adulteress's trade. The adulteress uses smooth, flattering words to draw you in to your death, is the idea. In Proverbs 26, 28, he warns us, A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Psalm 12, 2-3, here's what David prayed. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. But even worse, there's some uses in Scripture that speak about and highlight the use of flattery in the context of theology or doctrine and how dangerous this is. In Ezekiel, for instance, chapter 12, 23 and 24, the Lord says to Ezekiel, Say to them, this is, this is apostate Israel. The days are near and the fulfillment of every vision is near. For there shall be no more false visions or flattering divination within the house of Israel. What marked the false prophets to Israel was not only the untruthfulness of their message, but the way in which they presented the untruthfulness. They used flattering divination. Here's an example of what they would say. Peace, peace, God is for you. When there is no peace, the prophet says. 
flattering words. You're okay. Everything's fine. You're God's chosen. When they were actually coming under judgment. That's an example. Daniel 11 gets even more specific, however. Chapter 11, verse 31 and 32, which is a prophecy about the Antichrist. Remember, Jesus identified the abomination which makes desolate, or the abomination of desolation, as it's translated sometimes. It's found in Daniel 11, 31 and 32. And here's how the Antichrist is identified. Now pay attention to this. This is important. It says, They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. That's the Antichrist. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. You see, the world ruler, the Antichrist, will be characteristically marked by the use of flattery. It's no small word, and it's no small practice. There's one use of this word in the New Testament. It's used by Paul. But I want you to hear the context in which he said it. This is 1 Thessalonians Paul says, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. You see, flattery masks a covetous heart. That's what it's doing. When you're using flattery with somebody, what you're really trying to do is get something out of them. And so it's an ultimately selfish practice of language. You'll use whatever it takes to sway them to get what you want. That's what Tertullus does here. So there's a twofold point from this in the use of flattery for the church. And I want to focus on this because, unfortunately, as I listen to pastors preaching, there are many good pastors who aren't afraid to say the truth. But flattery has become a common practice from the pulpit. And that terrifies me. Preachers are more scared of running off people than telling them the truth in love. Now, I'm not saying you get up here and become a bully pulpit and beat people up. But if they're in danger, you warn them. You don't butter them up. So the point is, refrain yourself from flattering speech. Don't fall into that practice. What it shows is that there's a fear of man in your heart if you do that, rather than a fear of God. You don't want to be characterized by one who just butters people up all the time. It's an evil, covetous practice that the Scripture never paints, not one time, paints in a good, acceptable light. But second, be aware of people, especially preachers, unfortunately, who make use of flattery. Especially Use of flattery from the pulpit. If I know we've got a lot of transient military folks, and so you guys are coming to many churches throughout your career. When you see preachers standing up here in the sacred spot, the pulpit should be a sacred, truthful, truth-telling spot, but all they're doing is trying to butter you up, tickle your ears with what sounds good. Beware of those people. They've got nothing good in that practice. How should we be, on the other hand? Turn with me real quick to 2 Corinthians. I love this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Here's an example of how we should be with our words in contrast to the use of flattery. And then we'll get back to our text here in Acts, following this little rabbit a bit. Verse 17. Here's what Paul said. 2 Corinthians 2.17 For we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. That's a powerful statement. Paul just told us, we are not peddlers of God's Word. I'm not simply up here to peddle this to you in order to gain money. That's the idea. People, even in Paul's day, would preach out of false motives, bad motives, Philippians chapter 1. Many do it to gain wealth. This is common today. You don't have to go far on the TV to see preachers who preach just to gain wealth. They're flatterers. They're condemned by the Lord. That is never the motive for preaching God's Word. Men of sincerity. Jesus said it this way very simply in the Gospel of Matthew, Sermon on the Mount. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond that is sin. 
If you can't simply say yes or no and be sincere to your words, Proverbs also warns us where there's a multitude of words, sin is not far behind. It's a good picture. Let's get back to the book of Acts and look now at the charges that they're laying out against Paul. There's three of them. There's a personal charge. Totola said, we have found this man a plague. The second charge is a political charge, which is potentially the most serious for Paul. We're going to look at it. Tertullus says he stirs up riots and he's a leader of the sect of the Nazarene. There's two in there that we're going to look at. The third was a religious charge. He tried to profane the temple. So let's look at these and what they're getting at in this. The first charge, the personal charge, this man is a plague. Well, this is pretty subjective. Paul himself said, I'm considered as as the refuse, the off-scourging of all the earth. He said to the Corinthian church later in 2 Corinthians, you know, to some were the fragrance of life unto life, but to some were the fragrance of death unto death. So this personal charge of being a plague, it kind of depends on which side of the gospel you're on. For those who knew the gospel, who knew the Lord, appreciated Paul's ministry. There's no plague about him. To the Jews, where Paul would go in from city to city and expose their self-righteousness, their hypocrisy, and lay the gospel claims on them, he was a plague. So this is a baseless charge. There's, there's, there's really no way that, that this can be defended or affirmed. So why say it? That's part of the use of flattery. Tertullus knows, any good lawyer would know, this is a baseless charge in, in the courts. They're trying to sway and bias the judge, in other words, against Paul. For the next two charges, the political charge he brings up secondly is he stirs up riots and he's a leader of the sect. This is the more serious charge for Paul. Because if true, Paul could be killed under Roman law for it. If he's a stirrer up of riots. Well, let me talk about the sect one first. Let me, a sect of the Nazarenes. The reason he used, again, don't read the scriptures though, this is just kind of random statements. This is a legal outline, okay? He, Tertullus uses these words very specifically. The reason he said he's of the sect of the Nazarenes is he's trying to disassociate Christianity or the way, or the Nazarenes, if you remember from earlier in, in Acts, it was a derogatory statement. He's trying to separate it from Judaism. Why? Because under Roman law, you were not allowed to just go start a new religion unless they approved it. The Romans saw this way as part of Judaism. Judaism had already been approved under Roman law, so there's no problem with this. Tertullus is trying to show Felix, no, this is a sect. It's a new religion. It's condemned. You've never approved it under Roman law. It's a very serious charge. The second one, a stirrer up of riots, is the most severe politically because it would have major consequences under Roman law. At this time in history, you've heard of the Pax Romana. Okay, Pax Romana was the Roman peace, is what it meant. And anything that came up in Rome that would threaten the Pax Romana, they put down very quickly to maintain that Roman peace. And so Paul being charged as one who stirs up riots is a direct threat against the Pax Romana, and they would deal quickly and severely with him if it's true. Remember at Ephesus, when the riot started at Ephesus, And it was the Ephesian leaders who had to go into the amphitheater and say, hey, we are in danger of violating and violating the Roman peace. If there's nothing against these men, dispel before charges are brought against us. You remember that? It's the same thing. But in a way, everywhere Paul went, there were riots, right? But they weren't caused by him. (laughs) That's the difference. Paul preached the fulfillment of Judaism in Christ. And those who listened hated it. Paul preached that Jesus Christ was Lord. That is a direct threat against Caesar being Lord. However, under Christianity, there was never the authority for Christians to rebel against those earthly authorities, right? Remember what Jesus said when He was tempted? They brought a coin to him and said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? What did Jesus say? 
Render unto Caesar what's Caesar's, render unto God what's God's. He's establishing a political posture there. Hey, submit to the authorities. If it's theirs, it's theirs. But if it's God, submit to Him. Peter would, would write in 1 Peter to, to pray for the kings, pray for the rulers, submit to your authorities, right? That's the attitude of Christians to ruling authorities. Why? Romans 13, Paul writes, because God has established those authorities for our benefit. So rather than rebelling against human authorities, no. We worship another king, but we still submit. Now, obviously, we don't submit if they're telling us not to preach Christ or something like that. Then we suffer for it. But Paul lived in submission everywhere he went. It's interesting. This attack was also used on Jesus by the Jews. Remember that? Turn real quick with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 19. This is a powerful political charge that an enemy could bring against someone, and they know that if there's any possibility of this charge sticking, they would get their way. In John 19, Jesus is before Pilate. Verse 12, it says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him. That's Jesus. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabatha. Now it was that day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. It's all political jargoning to get what you want. This is a terrifying practice, by the way, when politics are used for these kinds of ends. Without care of truth, without care of righteousness, justice, is simply political posturing. They're doing it again to Paul. Why? Because it works. The last charge there that he profaned the temple was a flat-out lie. Now, why they bring this up is because the Jews were allowed by the Romans when it came to issues regarding their own religious law, the Jews were allowed to exercise that law autonomously from Romans. Even in certain cases, they were allowed to exercise the death penalty. And so, what they're arguing is, look, he profaned our temple, and according to your own allowance, we're allowed to deal with him. And that charge of profaning the temple carries a death penalty. Now here's, here's what I mentioned earlier. Some of your Bibles, I have, I'm preaching out of the ESV. Some of your Bibles may have some verses that the ESV did not insert in. And this is why, because in the earliest of the Greek manuscripts that we have, in many of them, those verses are not in there. In some of them, they are. And so they chose to leave them out and put a footnote and say, hey, here's the verses that are not contained in the ESV text. It's the end of verse, the end of verse six, all of verse seven. In the beginning of verse 8. And here's what it says. Verse 6, And we would have judged him according to our law. But the chief captain Lysias came and with great violence took him out of our hands. And then verse 8, Commanding his accusers to come before you. That's not in the, in the ESV translation. But it is in some early manuscripts. Here's, here's the thing. Whether, whether or not it was in the originals or not, we don't know. In those cases... Um, they, they opt to leave them out with a footnote to let you know. There's some manuscripts that have this, but many of them don't. In either case, it doesn't really change the meaning. If these verses were in the original, then what Tertullus is saying is, Lysias, remember Lysias was the tribune who grabbed Paul out of the Jews' hands and, and rushed him off to Caesarea. What they're saying is Lysias stepped outside of his authority and violated our law. We would have judged him according to our law, but you stole him from us. That's why we're standing before you today. If those verses weren't in the original, then Tertullus is simply saying, Felix, you examine him and you'll find these things to be so. Okay. Either way, that's the religious charge. And without a doubt, they're trying to get Felix to say, 
give Paul back to the Jews and let the Jews deal with him because they knew what they wanted. They put him to death immediately. Felix, however, was smarter than that, as we'll see. He knew the Jews and he knew Christians. He also had received the letter from Lysias explaining why Lysias was sending Paul to Felix. No charges were ever brought against Paul. He couldn't ascertain what was going on. And the Jews were trying to kill him, so he sent him off. So Felix wasn't swayed by these false arguments. The sad part of this is, and the reality is, that the Jews here are flatterers, they're liars, they're murderers, and yet they're the ones standing free, accusing. While Paul is bound in chains, innocent. That's often the reality and position that Christians will find themselves in this world. So don't be surprised, nor try to avoid it. You endure it. Paul did. And we'll see as we finish the book what that led to. Often, for you as a Christian, lies and deception will afford someone, uh, using lies and deception will afford someone to escape consequences, to supposedly keep them free from unwanted circumstances. But eventually, as the proverb says, he who digs a pit for his enemy will fall himself into it. That's exactly what happened to the Jews. In fact, if you look at history, just a few short years later, maybe roughly eight years later, the Jews themselves were destroyed and the temple wiped out by the Romans. Why? For starting a riot. The very thing they're trying to cause or put on Paul. So they fell into the pit they themselves are trying to dig. Let's look at Paul real quickly and then move on to our last. Paul, truthful and yet imprisoned. And I want you to notice how Paul, beginning in verse 10, addresses Felix. He addresses him with respect, but not flattery. Okay, In verse 10, when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they are bringing, now bringing up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets." having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia... They ought to be here before you and make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say that wrongdoing, the wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial today. So Paul begins answering these charges. The first answer that Paul gives is, is answers the temple charge. He profaned the temple. And he gives them, he gives Felix a timeline. He says, it's not more than 12 days since I went up in worship to Jer- in Jerusalem. Seven of those days, you remember the, the vow that Paul had taken was seven days. And he was going to present himself after the seventh day to the priests. And on the seventh day before he could do that was when Paul was grabbed and seized. And then it'd been five days down here in Caesarea. Seven plus five is 12. All Felix would have had to do to see if Paul is telling the truth, is go to the temple priest and see, hey, did Paul sign up for these rituals? When was the ritual going to end? Very easy to verify. And so Paul was adamant and gave Felix all he needed to check out this claim. And it says in verse 12, they didn't find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Remember, the Jews from Asia saw Paul in there and they suspected that he would brought the Greek in. And so they grabbed him and seized him and said, Jews everywhere, come help. This is the man who stirs up, who hates the law, who hates the temple, right? They're the ones who caused the riot. Not Paul. He was in there worshiping. 
And again, he points out, those Jews who grabbed me, the Jews from Asia, should be here to make those accusations. If they have something against me, if not, these men need to do it. By the way, that's one of the, <clears throat> the tenets of the law, is that a, one being accused has the right to face his accuser. It's right and it's just. You should always have the right to face your accuser. And Paul points that out once again. They don't care about the law or righteousness or truth. So Paul, uh, Paul was not in the temple desecrating or profaning the temple. In fact, in verse 17 and 18, he says, After several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present the offerings. Remember, that was the offering from the whole Gentile churches. writes about in Corinthians. He came to bring the offering from the Gentile churches to his Jewish brothers as a means of unifying the church. And he's worshiping in the temple. In verse 18, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. So in regard to the temple charge, which could have carried a death penalty for Paul under Jewish law, it's false. Absolutely false. And Felix could discover that truth. But he also... um, in verses 14 through 16, identifies for Felix what they mean by a sect. Look at verse 14 with me and following. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. Now this is important how Paul says this. He doesn't say that Christianity or the way is which he calls it is, is a break off of Judaism, which would be a sect. What Paul says is that the way is the fulfillment of Judaism. I worship God, the God of our fathers. And what else does he say? Believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. You see, all the law and all the prophets pointed to who? Jesus Christ. Fulfilling it all. And so Paul's not the one abandoning Judaism in that sense. He's worshiping in its fulfillment. It's these guys who are the heretics who've broken off and deny God and the truth in Scripture. He worships according to the forefathers. They don't. So, Paul was not looking to pick a fight. He was worshiping. He was giving alms to the church. They laid hands on him, stirred up the crowd, tried to kill him. And again, to point out the paradox, Paul was truthful. He was innocent. And yet, he's the one standing there in chains, having to defend himself. Again, This will be the place you often find yourself in as a Christian, especially as the world more and more and more rejects any worldview truth claims that we may adhere to. But as I said, I don't want to focus on Paul in this passage. I want to get to Felix, okay? Because this is is an important take. So begin reading with me in verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And after some days, Felix came down with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Several things we're going to talk about. The first there, integrity versus inconvenience. Paul is here the model example of integrity. He doesn't speak in anger. He speaks truthful and he speaks pointedly. But this whole thing was an inconvenience for Felix. He, he says to the Jews, he puts them off. Verse 22 says, When Lysias the tribune comes down, then I will decide your case. Well, in two years... Lysias was never able to come down. It was an inconvenience. Why? Because this could have stirred up the hornet's nest just like it would have with Jesus. The Jews were prone to stir up riots and the Romans knew it. 
Felix could discern that these men wanted Paul dead, just like they did with Jesus. And when Pilate wanted to release Jesus, what did the Jews do to the crowd? Stir them up. And fearing the crowd, fearing the mob, what did Pilate do? Abrogated justice and gave Jesus over to be crucified. It's essentially what Felix does to Paul. Essentially what Felix does to Paul. But you don't find Paul complaining. The model of integrity versus political inconvenience. It's a sad truth. But unfortunately, political leaders today are the same way. This is why when truth, when justice, when things that are right do not lead a people group, especially politicians, all kinds of injustices are created by those in political authority. This is not an uncommon situation, but unfortunately for Felix, it's one that's costly for him. So we never see Paul complain. He takes advantage, rather, advantage of the opportunity to preach the gospel. That's what's so cool. That's the humility of Paul. Interest versus indifference. We're told that Felix had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. He had an interest in the way. We're told that he would send often to hear Paul and to speak with him about faith in Christ Jesus. But the indifference is alarming. The text tells us that when Felix became alarmed as Paul reasoned with him about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, he put Paul off. Now the indifference is this. He was indifferent to his own soul which is the most terrifying and sad kind of indifference people display every day. They can know the truth. They can hear the truth. They can even have an interest in the truth. And yet when they reject it, they're only showing the indifference to their eternal happiness in Christ. It's so sad. What's ironic here is that Felix is Latin for happy. That's literally what Felix means. And yet he made the most unhappiest of choices that he could ever have made in rejecting the gospel. Innocence versus influence in verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded and he left Paul in prison desiring to do the Jews a favor. Paul was innocent. He suspected it. The case and testimony proved it. And yet it would have been a riotous opportunity for the Jews. And so Felix uses his influence, desiring to keep the Jews at bay. And by the way, why do you think Felix would want to do the Jews a favor? Well, historically, like I said, we know much about Felix. He'd already been threatened by the Roman leaders in Rome over his treatment of the Jews. I think Felix left him in prison desiring to do the Jews a favor to smooth things over with them. He's using his position and authority as an influence with them. Ultimately, it didn't work. He was replaced because of his wickedness. Let's talk about some other things. Felix here is the proverbial example of being so close and yet so far. And think about this. Felix really is a picture of so many people today. So many people are so close to the truth. They are so close to having eternal life, and yet they're so far. This is such a sad example of one who missed his opportunity. It's what he said in verse 25, when I get a more opportune time, I will summon you. I'm going to talk about that in our next slide. But what that statement really shows is his own deception. He himself is deceived. Let me ask you this. How many of you know that you'll have an opportunity tomorrow? Good. You don't know that. The arrogance of Felix said, when I get around to it, I'll speak about this and think about this some more. Remember what Jesus said, you fool. Tonight your soul will be required of you. And what will you give? This is the deception that millions of people are in. They touch the truth. They taste the truth. They hear the truth. And they never respond in faith. They put it off, put it off, put it off. Felix was willing to trade the treasure of the gospel in hopes that Paul would give him gold. 
Isn't that sad? You see, here's what's going on. Felix was a very sinful guy. We know from history, his wife Drusilla, who we're told by Luke was Jewish, this was an adulterous relationship. He literally stole Drusilla as a married woman through deception. Caused her to divorce her husband and was in this relationship. We know that he wanted Paul to give him bribes. According to Roman law, it was forbidden for leaders to take bribes. Tacitus, the Roman historian, I quoted saying, hey, they're workers of evil, right? And yet Felix is here, greedy for money. So he kept calling Paul to listen to him in hopes that what? Paul would say, hey, here's a couple hundred dollars, let me out. He had a love for money in his heart. He was in an adulterous relationship. And so as Paul reasoned with him, as we're told about righteousness, he became alarmed. Why? He couldn't deny that he was unrighteous. What else did Paul reason with him about? Self-control. These weren't random things that Paul's dealing with. Here's the, here's the manliness and courage of Paul. He's directly dealing with Felix. Felix, you are living in sin right now. Your wife is in a, you're in an adulterous relationship with your wife. You're using your political authority for unjust means. You're trying to get bribes out of me. It's full of all kinds of sin. And yet Felix kept those sins in his heart. And those sins kept Felix from God. He was not willing to let him go. And so when Paul finally reasoned with him about the coming judgment, that was all Felix could take. Get away from me. Do you realize, though, that in being alarmed and being stirred up about your spiritual state is a gracious thing, church? This is God trying to get a hold of him. Why? To save him. And yet so many people, when they come under conviction of sin, whether lost or saved, they harden their heart. They resist it. No, 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 no. They put it off. They say to themselves, when I get a more opportune time, then I'll summon the truth back. I want to live for these sins right now. It's not convenient for me to give them up. Just think through the history of Scripture. How many people came close? Remember Pharaoh. How often God, through Moses and Aaron, told Pharaoh, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. And Pharaoh what? Hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart. What happened? Destroyed. Think of Israel in the wilderness. They were right on the border. The spies come back and say, man, it's a great land, but man, we, we can't take those guys. Only two. I said, yeah, we can. What happened to them? That generation perished in the wilderness, never got to go to the promised land. Another picture of being so close and yet so far. Over and over and over, you find examples of Felix. Go to Mark chapter 5 with me. We're going to look at a, a dramatic one. Mark chapter 5. And we'll end with this. We'll begin reading in verse 24. So remember, Jairus, his daughter had fell ill. He's imploring Jesus to come heal his daughter. And so as Jesus is making his way back to Jairus' house, a great crowd followed him in verse 24 and thronged about him. Literally, they were pushing, trying to get at Jesus. And so it's a mob-type scene. Jesus is in the midst of this people just thronging all over him, trying to get to him. In verse 25, there's a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind Him in the crowd and touched His garments. Now here's the key. For she said, If I touch even His garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in Himself that power had gone out from Him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched My garments? We can sympathize with the disciples' response. You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? But there's a different kind of touch he's talking about. The touch of faith is what it was. 
Verse 32, he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now here's the grace of Christ. Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. All these people are pressing up against Jesus. All of them are touching Him. Only one was made well. You see, that's a picture of the world today still. There are so many people who come into contact with the truth, yet they don't have faith. They touch it. They handle it. They hear. They see over and over and over and over. They're pressing up against it, and yet they are excluded. There was one who touched him with faith. He perceived it, and his message her was, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You see, that's the picture for sinners. We have this disease of sin, and we can spend all we want on it. We can seek out medical help. We can seek out ways to, to get rid of this disease of sin, and we can't. And in trying to do that, we'll actually be made worse. The one thing that's needed is faith. The look of faith when you reason in your heart, if I just go to Christ, I'll be made well. That's all it is. And in that instance, you're made well. That disease of sin in you can be healed. It can be cleansed. It will be taken away. It's an act of faith. And Jesus perceives it. This woman walked away the victor. Felix, on the contrary, was one of those people thronging about and never came to faith. I put him in all caps there. Do not reason within yourself like Felix. And here's the thing. My own testimony in coming to faith in Christ is very similar to Felix. And by God's grace, I didn't perish before. <laughs> but from the time I was 16 until the time I was 20, 21 years old, I reasoned like Felix. Oh, I'll do that later. I'll do that. I have some things I still want to do. I put it off, I put it off, put it off before the Lord finally got a hold of me. Thank God I didn't perish before then because I would have perished eternally. He was gracious to me. Maybe you are reasoning like Felix and you've come under conviction of your life. You know something's missing. You know something's wrong. And you're hearing the truth that it's Jesus that you need and you're just putting it off. My encouragement is... is Listen to what Paul says. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to read it to you. Actually, I want to read the end of chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians 5.18 through the beginning of chapter 6, he says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to us, uh, sorry, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ. God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might be the righteousness of God. Now here's chapter 6. Working together with Him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. The book of Hebrews also quotes that verse. And it goes on to say this, if you hear His voice today, don't harden your heart. Today's the day of salvation. I wonder what it would have been like to listen to Paul one-on-one. -on -one. <clears throat> Felix had an opportunity that not many people did. Paul the Apostle, man, wouldn't you just love to sit at his feet? Felix got it, and he walked away. Don't be like Felix. If you hear his voice, if, you're, if he's drawing you, don't harden your heart. He's drawing you because He wants to heal you. He wants to save you. Now I'm going to pray.
Father, I thank You that You are still in the business of saving people from their sin, of forgiving them. Father, and that just as we saw in Felix, You strike their conscience with fear, not to condemn them, but to awaken the reality of the situation they're in, that they are in danger. And You are giving us, You are giving people opportunity to turn to You and live to be healed, to be saved, to be forgiven, to be made new. Father, if You're working in any here, I pray You give them faith to come to You, Lord. May Your Spirit communicate not only the terror of Your wrath, but the joy of being set free. For Paul said, those who are in Christ Jesus are no longer under condemnation. But it is a terrifying thing to have to deal with and bear our own sin. Who can stand before You, Lord? You are righteous, You are holy, and we are all guilty. So Lord, I pray for any who don't know You yet, that You don't allow them peace until they come to faith. Father, that You cause a restlessness in them until they seek and find the answer in You. Father, that they would come to know You as their sin-bearer, as their burden-bearer, that their conscience can be made clean, that they can have peace, they can have hope, they can have forgiveness, they can have joy. And all it is, is the look of faith. They see You as their need, as their answer. Father, they see You as being crucified as a payment for their sin that they will not have to pay anymore. And they trust You, Lord. Do that work in their heart, Father. Father, for those who do know You, grow us in the joy of our salvation. In these great truths, Lord, that You are in the world reconciling people and You didn't count our trespasses against us, but rather You forgave because it was Your good pleasure. You came to seek and save the lost. You came not for the righteous, but sinners, You said, because You love us despite those things, Lord. You've taken our sin away. You've hidden it from Your face. You've cast it as far as the east is from the west so that we can stand and behold You and not be ashamed. Thank You, Lord. pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.